You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Guidepost. This is a voice you're not used to hearing kick off the podcast. Normally, it is Tony. So those who are sick of hearing Tony, you can rejoice. Tony is busy on some call, some policy call right now. But we decided to kick one off. And uh, this is Captain Cody Rubner here. And I've got a good friend who we have kind of a unique uh, story and perspective about how we look at each other's lives because in a lot of ways we've made some similar career jumps and leaps and bounced off each other and picked each other's brains. And it's been really cool to watch his career develop while also uh, watching uh, him get more and more into the conservation space. So without further ado, I welcome Mr. Ben Wally from Maine, who is probably a lot colder than I. I'm down in Stewart, Florida right now. And I think, I'm assuming you're sitting on some snow, right? You just had a, a band come through? Yeah. Well, thank, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, always good to chat with you. Um, yeah, we got we have some snow. It's mostly ice right now because of that last monstrous um, storm that pushed through that set records as far as um, surf height and stuff. Like, did it. So much damage up and down the coast. And then uh, tomorrow we're supposed to get another one almost identical. And the tide's even higher, like 11 and a half feet, I think. That is absolutely crazy. And, you know, growing up in New England, knowing tide tide cycles from New England and coming down to Florida, like, you know, there's a couple foot tide around the Indian River Lagoon. There's there's not too much of a tide because of the total volume and where it spreads out. But, like, I mean, Maine's tides are already feet and feet and feet and so to to pile a yeah. big storm on top it's it's crazy how much damage nature can do yeah i mean the biggest aspect of this past storm is you know kind of rare we had winds out of the southeast so the way it was pushing in you know it, it was pounding the coast and coupled with the high i think it was 20 foot um surf out front Ouch. during the peak of it yeah. Ouch. So it 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 did a number um a lot of beaches and and spots where we tend to fish a lot got pummeled. So it's it's weird main yeah, main once the had surf some, goes over 20 feet. Oh, yeah, watch that, out. That's when you put the waders away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I try to put the waders away when it's, you know, below 20 degrees if I can. So okay. yeah, no, uh, a good time to put the waiters away, but thankfully, and we'll, we'll get into this as far as professionally and where, uh, what you're up to with your career, but, uh, you have a pretty good, uh, skill set and use for your time when things are a little bit colder and you're trapped inside because you spend a lot of time on the vice tying flies. And, um, it's been really cool to, to watch you develop your art and, and turn it into a career. And so on the, on the fly tying front, I guess, at, at the risk of a more general question or a benign question. I mean, when did you get in the fly tying and, and kind of what kickstart that passion? Yeah. Um, I'm blessed to, you know, be able to do it at, for a career now. Um, but I started tying, I, I got tying stuff. I think when I was like nine, maybe, maybe a little younger, um, a family friend 
of my dad's um, was a hunter. I think he was in Chicago area, maybe, but he sent down like a huge box full of deer and feathers and and a vice like a starter vice um and that kind of opened my eyes to the whole fly tying thing um and and you know being able to create something to full fish was just the ultimate for me so that kind of carried on growing up um down in brazil you know we had a large large um property it was a, a home for abused and abandoned street children but we also had animals on it which i managed from horses to cows to tropical birds and stuff so that was great because I, I was able to pillage you know feathers from our peacocks and pheasants and whatnot um yeah, I was going to say, as you start to build out your love for fly fishing and you're surrounded by exotic animals, you're probably looking at it less as, uh, uh, the, I guess, a regular human would look at them for their creatures. You're more looking at them as like a supply depot, right? Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was neat to be able to to pull from that. And, you know, during that period, I, I fished quite a bit. Um but I also was very, very into breaking and training horses and, you know, doing rodeos. And you say, that was always equally high on the on the scale with fishing were horses and, and kind of that whole side of life, which, you know, later in life, I had to kind of make a decision between the two. Um, I wanted to go to vet school. And after eight years up at the University of Maine, I just, I couldn't do another four or five years if I got in even because it was so, so competitive. Um, so fishing kind of took front and center at that point, especially and the whole guiding, you know, idea kind of really kicked into gear. That's cool. And, and, you know, honestly, right now, Ben, I'm thinking like, as far as the podcast goes, I have so many questions about growing up down south, about rodeos and a second life. And, <laughs> and so my my initial thought is like, we're definitely going to have to run back a second episode here because, I, you know, I know we talked about doing a shorter one today. and But I know already, yeah. I'm sure there's listeners already going, Cody, why are you not asking about all that stuff? So we're going to have to <laughs> run back and uh, do another episode and talk a little bit more about your your non-fishing passions, but uh, we'll lean into the the fly tying and the business side a little bit because those yeah. are the things I've I've been really uh, proud of watching you develop and and really enjoyed you know being a sounding board and and just uh, a fan of watching it develop here in the last couple of years. So for those who are like, how the hell are you not asking questions about his past life in the rodeo? That is definitely coming, and we'll do that in a round two. Um, so cool. So you you know. You started young in tying and obviously, you know, I must admit my my path in tying has a lot of <laughs> rage quitting in it where I, you know, within my first couple of years of learning how to tie and figuring it out on my own, uh, you know, I started tying a little bit when I was in college and definitely stunk at it and thankfully was operating within the bare minimum of some freshwater patterns and what they required. But I definitely had a few moments where I was... Uh, upset with the learning process of tying and definitely being a baby about it. And so I stopped tying for a little bit 
and then got back into it recently. And I'm very, very lucky and honored to have so many influences around me who are really damn good at this art. And it's funny when you got a lot of good people around you, how you can start to get better quickly. But where along in the tying process did you feel like, oh, damn, like, I think I'm starting to get the hang of this. Like, I'm, I'm producing a pretty good product. And maybe you're not even thinking about business at that point. But like, you know, you hit that moment, where you're like, hey, I'm pretty proud of these things. You know, these are more than just fishable flies, because there is a very big difference between a fly that can catch fish and a fly that looks damn good, you know, on a hook in a sh uh, shop or at a shelf. So where along in your fly tying journey, do you have a certain moment or a certain time where you're like, I think I started to catch, catch my wind here? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I tied flies for, for the first big stint living up in Maine here, um, for trout and, and bass and stuff. And, you know, those, the smaller stuff while I could tie it. And I, I think I was pretty damn good at it. It just never, like it's so small and I don't know, I never got the satisfaction that I do tying bigger stuff. And then I think when I moved to Southern Maine back in, uh, 2009, 2010, um, and I kind of went all in on the striper game. Um, and I started being able to tie and test and test and tie and it, you know, really kind of lean in and have friends that were phenomenal tires too, to be able to bounce ideas off of and, you know, kind of begin to hone that. It was, it was probably a couple of years into that to where I, I was like, man, these things work, number one. And number two, you know, I'm understanding kind of what, what things are required for to trigger, you know, my local fish to, to really hit and, and for them to be effective. And, you know, I, I learned a lot, as you mentioned, surrounding yourself with really good tires, you know, luckily, um, Instagram was kind of on the rise at that point and being able to, you know, ask people throughout the globe, honestly, that normally you wouldn't have access to, but being able to ask questions and kind of, you know, use them as sounding boards, you know, my learning curve went through the roof as well. Do you think that, you know, that just made me think something, but uh, that I'm not sure I have an opinion on the answer per se, but do you think that the fly tying community and, and fly tying kind of as a hobby or, or <clears throat> um, trying to think the best way to phrase this, like, do you think there's a more of a willingness and a more of an appropriate willingness to share when it comes to skill and insights and tricks when it comes to tying versus actual fishing? Meaning there is like a little bit of a guarded mystique to all I learned where fish live, how they do a certain thing. And obviously people share with, within their network and, and there is value to that shared understanding of a fishery, but also it's nice to have secrets, right? And maybe this starts to take a different outlook as you start to make it your business and you want your flies to set apart, uh, be set apart. But do you think fly tying has more of an openness and willingness to share? Because it is cool how you said with the rise of social kind of lining up with the development of your uh, fly tying, how you were able to connect with so many people. And there's probably more of a willingness to share in that community, right? Because to a certain 
extent, there's not as much of a threat, right? Like, oh, I can teach you how to make a better fly and you still have to put it in front of a fish, animate it, find the fish. So I'm just, I'm just kind of curious what you think about that topic yeah. because I do find that that find that interesting. Yeah, no, um, I I think it's I think a people are are definitely much more willing to share in the fly tying realm. I know you know Bob Popovics who has become a, a mentor and and friend and also one of lefties, you know. Um, mentees, you know, lefty pushing, like be, put, teach everything, you know, te- don't, don't leave anything untaught. And, you know, it does go against the grain in the fly fishing world and the fishing world, you know, to, to not leave any secrets, like teach everything. And especially early on teaching classes and stuff, you know, that's one thing it, when you're starting out and, you know, trying to make a name and you're, you're trying to follow the instruction of the greats and, and you're like, but I'm, I'm giving away everything that I've, you know, learned on my own, but I also learned from the greats. So, you know, because they were willing and what I've come to realize over the years is, you know, I can teach anybody, any of these skills, but teaching them the skills doesn't replicate what I'm doing. You know, everybody has a, a style, I would say. Like, I can look, I don't care where, you know, on online in a show, you know, just in a random box of flies. And if I saw, for instance, a Jason Taylor fly, who I I consider one of the tops in, in the saltwater, you know, northeast saltwater fly tying game. I, you know, his style just stands out and, you know, I think mine kind of have their own style too. And, you know, so you can teach people all of these skills, just like, you know, Lefty and Bob and everybody, you know, across the globe that has helped push this sport forward and this hobby forward. Um, You know, I think being able to continue to push that legacy forward through teaching and stuff of my own, you know, I, I'm very much an open book these days, you know, I, but on this, on the other hand, I think social media has also, you know, created this, this whole range of fly tires who are hobbyists, which there's nothing wrong with that. I was for years and years. Um, but social media has kind of given a platform to, to, amplify them where you know they there hasn't been that tested you know iterative kind of improvement of flies over the time and it you know they look great but they don't necessarily fish effectively just because you know the time hadn't gone in even though you read you know any one of these books that showed you every single step you know so I think there's a difference and between those two and yeah, I don't know how you get around that because I think with it social media, anybody can do then. it. I think that naturally you kind of get around that barrier because 
I can 100% completely reinforce your statement about like you could teach someone how to do everything and it will never look like the way you did it, that you have your own style, your own way you apply to things because you have taught me how to tie some flies certain ways and I do them and they never end up looking exactly like yours. So, um, you know, there's definitely a, an added benefit there, but I, at the same time, like you said, the application of that knowledge of that insight uh, separates different pattern or different people's abilities to complete a pattern. And then also naturally, you know, it's kind of that whole fake it till you make it type thing. And we see those similar, we're both, uh, I say younger, newer faces into guiding our guiding careers. And so we'll, we'll jump into that here shortly, but I think it's very similar with that as well, where you, you kind of could fake your way through or, or not necessarily, take your licks and go through entering that career path the right way. But I think it all shakes out in the end. And I think authenticity wins true and also quality of product wins true. And the one thing that I've always really appreciated specifically about your flies, and this is, you know, this podcast isn't a, Oh, look at Ben. He's the best fly tire ever thing. But uh, the one thing that I've really appreciated, I put a, a photo of a, a big Jack Craval that was caught in clear water uh, earlier today on my Instagram, that fish was caught on one of your bait fish patterns. And the thing that I noticed with how you complete a pattern compared to if I complete one and I go fish them is the durability. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell you're making these things out of. If they're like caked in some liquid that's illegal, that's imported from some country no one's heard of. But, you know, I have a couple of your bigger bait fish patterns in my box that I've caught giant cobia, multiple giant jacks, giant tarpon. There's one fly I'm in particular I'm thinking of. Uh, caught a bunch of stripers when I was up in New England, and it's got a year plus of like big game beatdown on it, and it's still really durable. So I think there are like things like that that separate a, a tried and true someone who's working to master their craft versus someone who's you know, maybe completing a final product that looks looks the same, but is different. So I feel like in that realm, that stuff shakes out. And I am very interested, or at least to go a little bit deeper and uh, on your relationship with Bob, because I think it's really cool in fly fishing, how the innovators it's it's a pastime in an industry that does a pretty good job of like cementing innovators in history, right? Where like patterns get named after people and whether it goes down to you who ties a pattern, who teaches me how to tie a pattern or 10 years now teaches someone else to tie a pattern. You'd be like, man, the way that fly is tied, man, that's, that's Bob. Bob was the one that innovated that or lefty or whatever that may be for the pattern. So I do think that is really cool. And, and it's even cool to see younger faces around my age who kind of protect that heritage. Cause I know one time I did a post uh, about some fly on a story and I said, you know, shout out to Ben for however I phrased it. I said like, you know, thanks Ben for teaching me. I was trying to give you some credit for teaching me how to, you know, build this pattern out this way. And people jumped on me in like two and a half seconds, like the internet normally does. And they were like, that's Bob's pattern. That's not Ben's pattern. And I was like, not only am I aware of that, but Ben very gracefully always reiterates that. So uh, talk a little bit about that relationship and, and how you view kind of that heritage in fly design and, and how you, I guess, approach preserving that as you continue to innovate. Yeah, it's, it's 
that's one thing that, you know, I, I plan and, and continue to do is, you know, it, it, those legacies and while there's books and there's, you know, great, great content videos and whatever that have been put out, you know, it's inevitable, especially in this day of, of social media where, you know, people change one, one material and rename it. And, you know, I, I do think it's, yeah, it, it's a gray zone, which is fine, but, you know, preserving the history. I mean, the thing, so Bob, Bob and I got connected, you know, not super long ago, but um, he's just been such a wealth of, of knowledge and a sounding board. Um, he, he keeps me straight pretty often. It's like, a, you know, just the other day, I'm like, oh, I had this idea. Let me, uh, let me run it past him. And I run it past him. And he's like, that's been done before. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's deflating, <laughs> but at the same, at the same time, like, you know, he's, he just has been around for so long and saw all of those, you know, things kind of come to be. And, you know, being a younger person kind of trying to learn, you know, it's, it's, there's no way that I can know what was done on the West coast back in the, you know, seventies, you know, unless it were, uh, you know, I try to read and, and learn up on the history of these things, but, you know, so having someone to be able to call me out on my BS or kind of provide, he, he never really gives me answers, which is, I, I just find it's an extremely, um, knowledgeable way of approaching it but he he'll ask questions that really provoke thought um to allow me to kind of reach probably what he was thinking in the first place <laughs> multiple rounds of thinking um which is probably but, a sign of respect too to a certain extent right because obviously you guys have a close relationship now and and it's probably a little bit out of respect of like now ben how would you approach this knowing that you're capable of getting yourself to the answer or, or getting yourself closer to your your goal because i gotta imagine if i asked the question he'd be like yeah dumb dumb just you know put the bucktail on the hook and uh, would not expect much out of me, but I think there's probably a certain level of respect there, correct? Yeah, I don't think he would ever do do something like that. He's he's just phenomenal with with and and loves teaching, especially you know novice people who are trying. That's um, and it's it's also tricky, you know. I you know mentorships I think are so important and so dead these days. Um, just because knowledge is so accessible online so people can read up on a subject and you know think they they know what they're talking about so i i and it requires a certain level of just being humble and listening and and not trying to like prove yourself you know um, but it's also it's also tricky, you know, he's in, Bob's in Jersey and I'm in Maine and, you know, so we end up texting a lot and kind of going back and forth and, you know, he digs up, he was extremely good at documenting everything throughout the years um, and sharing those, you know, those ideas and thoughts with me, which is always an inspiration for me. 
Um, so it's it's one of those things I, I, I've actually heard from someone in the last year, like, it's not a mentorship. You're not with, you know, mentorships are supposed to be like one-on-one. -on -one. You spend so much time, like, and it, call it whatever you want. He's been a very influential person. So, you know. And those are really important, right? Those relationships are really important. I've always... I've always tried to surround myself with people that are so incredibly talented uh, at what they do. And I've been lucky mm -hmm. early in my life to get some career opportunities that made that made that goal really easy. And like to just even take one, one thing from everyone around you, who's really good at what they're, what they do. It's amazing how yep. quickly you can improve your own game, regardless of, you know, that's outside of fly tying, right? That's just, anything whether you're an athlete and you look around at all the top athletes in your sport and try to take one thing from their game or whether it comes to fishing i've been super lucky to have a really good mentor locally within guiding and mm -hmm. uh when i was listening to you talk i was honestly thought of uh mike holiday who i've had a great relationship with and learned my area under and i owe owe so much to and i i've had so many similar experiences of what you're saying of like Hey, oh, I just had this killer idea. I'm going to do this. And he's like, yeah, we used to do that in the 70s. And you're like, shit, okay. Guess I'm, I'm not unique there. But it is really cool when you ask a million questions and, and you come back with a million things that you think you've discovered. And most times you maybe aren't discovering something new. But the couple times that I get something past, I go, hey, Mike, this happened today. And I did this and this worked. And I hear, no shit. That's that's one of those most rewarding feelings, right? It's like, damn, I actually got something by. Like, maybe I did make my own lane. If if even just for one step along that lane, you know, I started to to figure a couple things out on my own. So I really appreciate your perspective on that. And uh, I know you've you've wanted to get on the podcast in the past and try to get Bob on here too. So maybe we can set that one up in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um... And, you know, he's, he's one person, you know, I, just like you said, I think almost every facet of fishing or, um, or, you know, my prior career, you know, having those people that, that are willing to, to cut that, you know, activation energy barrier and learning curve down so that you can excel, you know, I'm just forever grateful for those people. And I hope that I, I can be that person someday, you know, down the road. So. I, like the, I like that perspective, right? It's activation energy. It's not that they're going to take you from zero to a hundred, but maybe they, someone, a good mentor sees passion in someone and says like, okay, you know, maybe it takes them from getting from zero to a hundred, but I can get them to 10 or 20 and let's see if they have the guts, the courage, you know, the ability to discover and interpret on their own to get themselves to a hundred with just that little boost. And I've always yep. looked at discovery and, and pushing myself and developing kind of my own path in that way. And the one thing that I didn't like is I never want to put myself in a position where I'm doing something solely because someone said, stand here, do this, congrats, you did it. And it almost feels, it, it triggers that like imposter syndrome that, is kind of crippling for me a lot of times. And so I would always like kind of say, no, 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 no. I don't, you, I don't want that much help. 
you know, guidance is one thing, but there is a certain barrier where it's like, man, you didn't get there on your own and it just doesn't feel right. So it's almost like you kind of want to close your ears to a certain extent, you know, listen, listen when spoken to, but also dare to figure it out on your own. And there's uh, I feel like there's a really healthy path to getting yourself to where you want to be by doing that and realizing you need to take the licks along the way. Like if you think you're going to start your own business, whether it's tying or guiding or anywhere in between, and in the first couple of years, you're not going to take some licks along the way. I don't think you're necessarily looking at it through the lens of, of longevity, right? Like that's how you become the 40 year plus tire guide or whatever skill set you're trying to hone is you take 10 years of damn, this sucks. And that's how you build that skill set, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think there's definitely something there to, um, you know, providing the opportunities, you know, having, having, those people provide opportunities and to, to take full advantage of all of those, you know, it's one thing to, for them to open doors for you, but it's another for you to, you know, have an opportunity and, and actually capitalize on it. Um, and I think, you know, I've always tried to stand, whether it's fly tying or guiding or my fishing or, you know, as a scientist or an engineer, you know, try to let my work speak for itself. You know, I, I didn't go to a fly fly fishing or fly tying show, you know, because I didn't think I was good at not necessarily good enough or had, but it put the time in up until like two years ago, you know, and I've been tying for a very long time. And you know, I, I think that might be a little extreme on my end. Um, my, but I think it's almost the other extreme nowadays, you know, people go the second they start tying, they've been tying for a year or two and they're at these shows, you know, not saying they're not talented. I've just always, you know, as far as recognition, as far as, you know, being able to step up to the next level, you know, I feel like if you put out quality work, and quality results, and you try to remain humble and hardworking, those results will reap long-term benefits over, you know, trying to, to get your name out. You know, I, I think marketing is a tricky thing because, you know, nowadays you can really use so many different platforms to kind of have, have a large audience with very little to go on um but which which is critical for any kind of business to be able to leverage those skills but at the same time i feel like you know to start out that way isn't isn't the best and doesn't make friends in any industry yeah i think it's tough i think there are definitely in this space some false idols who may be influenced uh not necessarily younger generation, but newer faces in the craft to go down that path that's probably misguided. But like you said, it's like, you know, it's a spectrum and there's dangers on both ends, right? Because you can't not use these tools and these resources and these new networks to get your name out there, to get your business out where if you think you're just going to sit at a table or float in your boat and that people are going to find you on their own, it's not 
feasible yep. nowadays in 2024. Holy shit, it's 2024. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, there is something about going too far down the other end of the spectrum, right? And that's that's something I've always struggled with and um, about knowing, you know, you know, through my past life of, you know, working in the brand space and then also hopping off and being a consultant for a lot of the biggest uh, by like just by scale, uh, sheer size, um, biggest brands in the space for digital marketing and brand marketing and community marketing and all these things that I know how these things operate and how to utilize these tools. But I've always been super hesitant and I'm kind of, you know, working on coaching myself and allowing myself to use some of those skills to promote myself a little bit more, my own business. Um, but I've always struggled with that out of a fear about going too far down the other way. And my my rule has just been always to, yes, there are certain things that will get you more clicks, but more clicks and more views aren't always the best thing for longevity. And, you know, how how can you start to promote a business that you're trying to grow and be an active member in a community, both in the digital space and in person, while also avoiding the gimmicks. I think that's really tough, and I I don't necessarily have an answer, and I struggle with it um, every day. But I do think being thoughtful is really important, and uh, especially, you know, I struggle with that also in the conservation space. Uh, I got a degree in marine biology. I really care about this stuff, and I spend every waking moment I can trying to learn more about it about the ecosystem dynamics, about fisheries management, about the the new realm of policy and where things are going. But at the same time, like when I'm going to make a comment at a local meeting or online of webinar, I have like these feelings like, do I actually know enough to be saying what I'm saying? Do I know enough? Am I worthy of one minute on the microphone? And so I think that's really tough, but also you can't be scared to try and realize that you're going to learn and refine along the way. I've learned a lot um, within the last 10 years uh, or so of my involvement in this industry and definitely used to do a lot of the things that I now hate and irritate me about what people uh, do. So realizing that you'll never be perfect and kind of enabling yourself to try things and have a little bit of courage, but also, not forcing the issue. It's, it's tough. And I can't say that I'm perfect at it, but it is definitely something I struggle with. And it's interesting to hear other people acknowledge it because as a friend looking at, you know, your skill set and what you do, like, I mean, I mean, I, I always tried to empower you and we had some really cool conversations when you were thinking about like, I'm going to really ramp this thing up and turn it into a business. I'm going to quit my full-time job and, and take these risks with my family. And, I was looking at you like, dude, you are stupid. How are you not doing this? Your your product is so incredible and there's already such a high demand. And when you go for this, you're just going to see instantaneous success. And I was enabling you with these feelings, genuinely feeling them. Meanwhile, you're on the other side. <clears throat> Meanwhile, you're on the other side, you know, thinking like, man, I don't know if this is going to work. And so it is, it is really interesting to see someone that I respect in their craft and see them feel those same feelings. And I guess maybe that's part of success is not knowing when you should take the leap and if she should go for it. And I guess to give people a little bit more context here on the, on those conversations, me and you used to talk when you were, when you were thinking about making the leap to go full time into tying and guiding. 
And it kind of coincided within, you know, a year or two of when I made the leap to open up a guide business down here. And we had some really cool conversations about what's the most sustainable business model. And that was when we kind of chopped up a little bit on that subscription style model of like, I'm going to do fly drops. I can't keep up with orders and there's a demand for my flies. And so um, it was really cool to see you develop it and to take the leap. And I hope, you know, and I, I kind of know through some of our recent conversations that obviously you're enjoying the challenges uh, and also the rewards and opportunities that have come with taking that leap. So let's get in a little bit further into what it was like taking the jump to work full-time doing what you love. Talk us through that process a little bit and uh, what was going through your head. Yeah. Um, the decision never, so, I mean, just to give people who aren't familiar kind of with my past, I I worked for a large biotech company as a scientist and then kind of in the quality aspect as a Lean Six Sigma black belt and then as a uh, process engineer for new product development and stuff. And it, you know, I moved around this large biotech company trying different jobs and climbing the ladder there. And it kind of got to the point after, you know, 12 years where I didn't quite see a, another path as far as I've tried all these different roles and I've done well at them, but the stress and the, the stress primarily that it was having on myself and my family. And it was around that time that my daughter was born and, you know, the whole perspective of the thought of, you know, my daughter looking back at those, you know, early years of me maybe being present, but so stressed out that, you know, I, I definitely wasn't present. And, you know, especially in those formative years, like that thought drove me nuts. Like, this isn't who I am. This isn't who I want to be. And yet somehow I, I'm here, you know, and that's kind of you and I started talking back and forth and, and our, our buddy, Joe Gugino with Costa um, was a Costa great resource Joe. as well. Everyone knows yep, Costa, Costa Joe. He probably doesn't even yep. have a last name legally. It's probably just Costa <laughs> and then his last name. Is Joe. <laughs> Shout out to Joe. Sorry. I had it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but at the same time, in my mind, it was kind of this dead end because sure, I was doing these fly, tying these flies and doing custom orders, and I was guiding on the side since 2015. You know, mostly, well, predominantly uh, Wade trips on in Southern Maine for stripers. Um, but our season is so short that there really is like. The guiding season's so short, I can't, I couldn't do that as a living, you know. And it was the the hardest part making the leap and coming to that realization was all the benefits working for a company this big, you know, from healthcare to you know just the flexibility and the the pay. I mean, there's no way I was gonna be taking the leap and coming even close to what I was making then. Um, but our discussions that we were having and, and honestly, it was the point of view that you guys had, like, let's try this model. And I demo, you know, I, I, 
I took the steps to set it up and to trial the the slide drop model, you know, before I, I made the leap and the first one or two of them were extremely successful. And it it was at that point where I'm like, actually, this this might be feasible. And I think that's where surrounding yourself with with good friends and, you know, having a, a family that will back you. You know, my wife was a huge, huge support and believed in this, you know, crazy idea um, from day one. And, you know, I think your guys' belief at, that it would work as much as my belief in myself, you know, I think those two things were critical to making that unknown leap. You know, I think that was, I was never afraid that, you know, if it fails, I can get another job somewhere, but it was more like, man, I'm really just going to do it. Like I'm just pulling the trigger <laughs> and it's, it's, it's been difficult in the sense that, you know, all of a sudden you don't have a steady income and you don't know where your next paycheck necessarily is coming. Luckily the business model provides some of that. Um, but we've navigated it. Ben, we should throw real quick, a a little shout out. I, I don't know if he'll ever end up listening to this, but maybe if there's a listener, who yeah. knows him, uh, the business model, when we've been saying that we both said it and probably should provide contacts for people listening, mm -hmm. um, is doing drops, right? So instead of, you know, I'm Ben and I can tie these 50 flies and this is, you know, they cost from a dollar to $10 and this is what they are and people ordering them. And then you getting to a point where you're like, dude, I, have order for 5,000 clousers and I don't have enough time to tie fly 5,000 clousers. Um, it was a, a drop model where people who love your flies and want the product, they follow along and you say, okay, I tied these flies this month or this, this time window, they drop on this day. And when they're live, get them, get them before they're gone. And so you're able to control your inventory and your schedule and you know how much you're going to make because those flies are worth this many dollars and you're going to make them by this day and you drop them and you, you ship them all at once and then you move on to tying for the next drop. And I want to give a shout out to Will Manning. Uh, I think his brand's called Heart. It's called Heartwood Forge. Mm -hmm. And he makes these beautiful knives. And I learned about uh him through i think one of maybe like a bad fish giveaway when marty and the bad fish guys were doing some christmas giveaway a year or two ago and they gave away um one of his knives and i started following along with him from there and that's how he did his custom knives instead of you know having this website where you can go on and pick an order it's like hey i made these who wants them and they're all so beautiful that people are like, man, I got to get mine. Even if that one's maybe a little bit different than what I would have ideally ordered, that is beautiful. And that'll still check all the boxes. I got to get that one while I can. So it puts someone who creates that style of art a little bit in more control of the, the business um, cadence, I guess. Right. Yep. Yeah. And you know, the other, you, you, opened my eyes with that one and then you know the other one that i still am super inspired by is um grizzly forge which is same thing makes beautiful custom knives um, i think lucas o'hara or something is his name but um it, you know it was a let's see if this will work and it did and um 
that suddenly though made you know guiding for from may to october and then tying flies during the other portion feasible as a as a you know income um to be able to pursue what i love and and you know it's it's been a learning curve and you know i each and every day i feel like you learn to optimize things and you learn things that you did wrong so that you can improve next time. But I, I mean, one of the biggest takeaways that when I announced to my team at this big biotech company, as well as all the people that I had, you know, grown to know over the 12, 13 year stint there, when I, when they found out what I was doing, I mean, it was insane. It had to have been over 50% of the people came up to me separately and they're like, if I had the, you know, cojones to do what you're doing, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I would have, I, I should have, you know, but now I'm here and, you know, I'm, now I just have to ride it out until I retire, you know, and, and that was just so incredibly kind of humbling, right? Pretty cool. Um, humbling. A little depressing too, just thinking that <laughs> yeah. that many people are stuck doing something just because they they weren't willing to take a chance. And, you know, that's, that's, I think the biggest lesson for my daughter, you know, in when she gets to the age where she has to navigate finding a, a job that she wants to do, you know, is realizing that, you know, it's not an easy decision, but if there's something you love, it's worth trying to, to make it happen. You know, I, my dad is a phenomenal wor world renowned artist. Like I always say that and people roll their eyes, but he's just, insanely talented and and you know but as a kid we were dirt poor that coupled with him volunteering to to start an orphanage but we were just very poor so i think just because of what i experienced growing up when when i went to college i'm like i need to get a steady job so that i can provide for my family and it was just you know really eye-opening kind of full circle that you know, I made it. I I climbed the ladder. I kind of I never envisioned myself being in corporate America, and yet here I am. You know, reporting out to senior management, and it it just leaves you like, how it how did I get here? And I'm still not happy. You know, you can have and and I know people say it, money doesn't make you happy, but it it was true. Like I wanted for nothing. You know, maybe maybe more time, more money to go on more fly fishing trips, but <laughs> you know that'll always be there. But it it suddenly put me in my dad's shoes, where he's followed his passion of of art and does it for a living. It suddenly put me in his shoes, like man, that that's truly what I'm here to do. You know, that's truly what my purpose is. You know. So much more than being just another, you know, engineer trying to solve some random 
thing that you're so removed from the actual benefits in the field. I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. Not looking down on any of those roles. I was about people to have say, passions. We're about yeah, to have no, like but, a 50, 50 split. There's like 50% of listeners who are like inspired and they're like, man, Ben, I'm going to chase my dream. Thank you so much. There's 50% of people <laughs> like, Hey, what do you got wrong? At, you know, what's wrong with being an engineer? And they're totally offended and tuned out by now. But yeah, before anyone <laughs> no, I, goes, looks up Ben's LinkedIn and see what company he works for, you know, <laughs> it's obviously Ben is saying this, uh, you know, within tongue in cheek, but uh, no, I think that's really cool. You know, hearing a little bit more about your pops, which I didn't know before this, that, you know, I, kn- I knew that he was kind of in the art space, but I mean, talk about nature versus nurture. You, you come from a family that was led by an artist who also used a lot of his time to care for other things. And now you look back at, uh, you know, maybe looking at an orphanage versus fisheries management, one might be a little bit more uh, tug more on the heart swings, heart strings and be a little bit more impactful. But that being said, nowadays, you're your own form of artist and you're making your own way and supporting your family and also now involved in conservation in a more significant manner than you ever have. And that's really cool. So shout out to Pops, uh, definitely influenced your path. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you realize that. But, um, you know, it, it is a lot of people say it and it is really true, right? Like you don't go into guiding or fly tying or a lot of a lot of the aspects of our industry, you know, on the manufacturer side, there is some money to be made. Um, if you're an executive VP, uh, you know, high level marketing director, event manager or something like that. But, you know, that being said, the money typically doesn't trickle down to like guides and, and tires at a significant scale. It's really hard. You know, the top, top guys who have, you know, corporate partnerships and they do TV shows and all these different things. There are definitely some people who make a very good living in this, but generally speaking, you don't go down this path because all of a sudden you're going to be rich and famous. You go down it because you love what you do. And I just two days ago or three days ago, went and picked up my boat from Lindsay Marine, uh, a local shop who had to do a bunch of repairs on my uh, new to me boat. And it cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, which I was not expecting. And it wasn't because they were price gouging. There was just a lot more to be done than I expected. And, you know, I humbly took that one across the chin and paid it. And I'm looking now at my calendar, like, okay, I got to get some more trips on the books and start to to square this thing off. But when I checked out with Sean, I swiped my card and he's, I said, yeah, that one hurts a little bit. And he said, Hey, but you got to love what you do. Right. And it is true. Right. Like who, I made a leap from a more, you know, I, I didn't have as long of a tenure in quote unquote corporate space. And even my corporate quote unquote role was really fun and unique and probably very few, you know, manufacturing job roles um, exist like that in the space. So I'm I'm talking from a, a lower rung on the totem pole, but there was definitely way more money to be made being a consultant in the industry and working where the money flows in marketing. But, you know, I love taking people fishing. And so I know the same sentiments, um, you know, and I think that's why we will text each other photos of whether it's tying related or guiding or how a certain trip went, but the highs and the lows, man, they, they fill up your heart a lot more than the highs and the lows of an office space. Right. And like that moment of helping someone catch, when they look at you and like give you a hug and they're like, that's my first tarpon on fly ever. And that's all I've wanted to do. 
th- that experience is re- way more rewarding than any check you could get in like office pizza party for a good quarter, right? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I, th- I think you know, being able to guide had so many opportunities, you know, to to have really meaningful discussions with clients and bond with them. And, you know, I'm always amazed the discussions that, you know, come up on, on the skiff throughout the the day Um, and how many meaningful conversations, interactions, you know, you know, my past is, is not the cleanest, um, but every single one of those has gotten me to where I am and is also an example of, what can be, you know, whether it be like making the leap from, from that kind of role to what I'm doing now, or, you know, being involved in, in, in drugs to making it out to the other side to, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, But each one of those is such an example to be able to show compassion and, you know, while experiencing the highs of, you know, sharing this incredible fishery and experiences with people that have never done it before or that have done it and are just, you know, just as geeked about catching striper number 1000 as they were number one, you know, it's infectious and it's what gets me up at, you know, 233 every morning during the season. Yeah. You know, and, and it's also humbling too. I find, and I'm curious if you've had this, but like, I'll get to the end of a trip sometimes. And then people say, remind me again, what I, what I owe you. And you're like, Oh, right. I was working and this person's going to pay me money. Like it, it, it feels, and obviously you've done, you know, you've provided the opportunity, you've done all the hard work, you're providing institutional knowledge and knowledge of the area um, and all the gear. And like, there's a very justifiable cost behind a vast majority of the costs of guiding in different areas just because of what it takes for boat upkeep and everything. But like, it's, it's sometimes humbling. Cause you're like, man, I just felt like I was fishing with my friends there and I was getting all the enjoyment out of, I don't want to stand on the bow. And that was how I knew I've always wanted to get into guiding. I used to record little like iPad videos where I was like, Hey, I'm Cody. I'm out here. I was on a pontoon boat, uh, in on Anabesicook in central Maine, which, you know, um, and I always knew I wanted to be a guy, but like there were little things along the way in the development of my fishing career where I reinforced those. And it was always finding more enjoyment watching someone else do something and trying to analyze all the different variables and the environmental factors that go into making that situation happen. That was where I found the warmth and enjoyment. When I bought my first micro skiff, when I moved to uh, Florida, I helped seven or eight people catch their first red on fly before I did where I pulled them to and they say, Hey, do you want to get on it now? And I was like, no, I'm actually, I'm really enjoying being on this side of the team. And so it is really cool, really humbling, really heartwarming where at the end you're like, Oh, right. I was working. Cause it just, for the last six hours, it felt like I was fishing with friends and I was getting so much warmth out of watching them be happy and experience and go through trial and error and figure things out. Um, that's one of the most rewarding parts of it. And I think that's what keeps you going. And like you said, gets you up at the ass crack of dawn before anyone should be waking up. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, 
being a flats guide is honestly, I just, I, I was telling you before we started recording about, you know, the fitness level of, you know, polling every day. So you, I, I don't know. I feel great during the season trying to carry that through the off season. Um, a little well, I'll harder. Tell you, what, you know, it'll make you skinny fat real quick or just fat fat, depending on your metabolism. Either way, <laughs> you want to get out of shape, buy yourself a beautiful Minn Kota. And shout out to Minn Kota because I love my my trolling motors. But man, like I fished with Sear down in the Keys for a tournament and like uh, on, on certain days with swap between, you know, who's pulling or practicing or whatever. I'm like, damn, I kind of forgot you got to move this boat around with your own arms. Like, where's the buttons? What do I get to click? Minn Kota will be the death of you can tell who pulls a boat and uh, who uses a trolling motor by their fitness level. It's true. Um, but being able to, to stand back there, you know, my days off, I'm taking buddies out to either scout or, you know, just connect with friends, but I'll go out with them. And, you know, a number of them have learned to pull over the years with me. And they're like, you want me to hop up? And like, you can ask any one of my dear friends that go out with me throughout the season, I never hop off of that. I just love, I love pulling it around and trying to figure out, you know, all of the variables. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things so gratifying to be able to, whether it's a highly experienced angler on the bow or a novice, but being able to try to work through fish through the person on the bow you know which can be very hard and very easy at times you know but but that is you know i i've caught my fair share of stripers and still love to do so but you know this is like fully hobbling yourself and it there's such a gratif uh, gratification from you know, working as a team with someone to accomplish the end goal and see the, see the, you know, fish interactions from that point of view. I just love it. I do think that's like one of the interesting dynamics that you can pick up with other guys around my age or whether they're older or younger and trying to, trying to get into guiding. But I think you can almost see a little bit of the writing on the wall, not to necessarily say that anyone can get in the guide and become a great guide, but that there would be a higher learning curve for people that think their fishing skills translate into good guiding. Like if you see someone who's like, yeah, I'm going to start guiding soon, or they just caught kicked off their business. You got to come fish with me. You got to come fish with me. And the photos online and the videos online are always them holding fish that they caught. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, that, that doesn't translate into being a good guide the same way like damn look at this beautiful fly i tied it might look beautiful in that photo but that doesn't necessarily mean that it translates into being something that fishes really well how does it run in the water and so profile and does it keeled right and all those things so i do notice that a little bit that there is a misperception with younger faces that being a good fisherman equals being a good guide and i don't think those necessarily correlate though you know, it's not, it's not one-to-one -one because knowing a shit ton about fishing might help you be a good guide. But that being said, I think the best guides aren't necessarily in the spotlight. You know, if the photos aren't of them and it's not about them talking about their skills, it's, it's finding a pride in, like you said, fishing through someone else. I mean, how could, how could you make a difficult task any harder? Yeah. I, you know, 
there are a, there are plenty of difficult days throughout the season. You know, whether it's weather, uh, tough weather, from tough rain, tough fog, tough tides, um, and it's always interesting. You know, to the point where you're like, Can, do I still know what I'm doing? You know, and this is after you know years of fishing myself. Like I, I. And, but it's gratifying to go out after a tough day, like dropping them off and just being like, I need to prove to myself and catching a fish, you know, and, and being like, okay, all right. I still, I still know got- what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, you get humbled way more days than you would like, you know, like in, in guiding and, and continuing to get better at guiding is definitely not a linear path right it's the fishery is constantly evolving and all the environmental conditions that are changing that affect the fishery and uh you know a different uh distribution of you know size and age each season when they come back and fishing pressure changing in certain areas there's so many things that affect it and uh you know i talk with holiday a lot after a bunch of my trips and say hey this is what went down this with this this with that and early on, I used to kill myself over the catch count. You know, the, the end game is you're taking people out to get their skills better for them to have a good time and get away from all the trials and tribulations of life. And then they also have goals for their angling. And I used to really, really put a weight on just the third one. And I would have some days where I'm like, man, I like, F and hell, man, that was a three fish day. Like, you know, six hours, I work my tail off. What? I, none of the variables change from how I normally look at this fishery. And I would call Mike and Mike would be like, yeah, man, that was, I had a real tough one. You know, you were fishing fly. You got three. I was fishing bait. We only got four or five. And and you start to say like, oh, okay, maybe it, it's just hard today or that, you know, it just didn't come together today. And you, you take those licks early and those are what you learn from. But man, you do have a lot of humbling moments. So anyone that posts online that they catch them a hundred percent to the best of their ability every day, and they've never had an off day, that's you know that's the first point at a liar, um, because it is it is very humbling. And having a voice and having mentors like we talked about earlier, who can provide perspective as you learn in that scenario is really really important because you start to oh wow, Mike's been fishing here for forty something years and. You know, he had a tougher day today, too. So maybe I didn't have as tough of a day as I think. I'm just holding myself to a really high standard. and Having those influences is really important. But uh, let's jump into that. We've been bouncing around it and talking about it from the business perspective and kind of from the emotional perspective. But, you know, your guiding business. Talk a little bit about the boat you run, what you do. Rough, obviously, no, we're not looking to spot burn or anything. But, like, you know, the areas you're fishing and what drew you to building the business the way you do because we run different businesses my boat's a little bit bigger i run a bay boat i fish from you know a foot of water to 350 on a giving day sometimes you know going from both those ends within a four or six hour trip so what made you fall in love with the area that you're working in now and tell us a little bit about the business yeah so um i offer guided trips in maine uh mid-may to mid-october for striped bass um I I did wade trips from 2015 um, in the next bay south of where I currently do, so Saco Bay, which um, wouldn't allow me to do what I do today. Um, 
because it's it's open to the ocean. So there's a couple of rivers that abut it, but by and large, it's wide open. So any big, big surf um, or wind, you know, running a small skiff um, just wouldn't be feasible. Um, so I currently run a, a micro skiff, technical polling skiff. Um, it's 17 feet. Um, it's an Ancona Cayenne, kind of a cool hull. Uh, it's a partial tunnel, um, but drafts, you know, five inches and just allows me to really focus on the ultra skinny, which I, I you know, I, I used to see on the sand flats down in Saco Bay where I fished a ton. Um, and then Casco Bay, where I, where I guide out of, uh, is there's over 200 islands that kind of create a perimeter um, to this entire bay, allowing it to be pretty sheltered um, from, from surf. So it's not like I, you know, I have to keep a close eye on the surf unless I want to go fish the rocks on the outside of the, these islands that are exposed to the ocean. Um, but, you know, between both in the river rivers, river mouths, in between the islands, in, you know, all these nooks and crannies, uh, there are flats, whether it be mud flats, sand flats, mussel bars, um, oyster bars, um, kind of drop-offs, channels. Um, it's just so many opportunities to, to sight fish. And our tides in Maine are are very large so the 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 deltas make it tricky especially on the upper side to continue to do site fishing so having a lot of spots um that change constantly throughout the season so that you can kind of maximize your your time and experiences for your clients um is tricky but also very rewarding because you're fishing different water constantly um all of which are beautiful too i obviously i went to school in maine university of maine and um, i didn't really fish too too much where you fish now i actually fished like a little bit further south or a little bit further north and got the opportunity to fish with you uh that was this past spring right spring of 23 for the for the first time since, especially for the first time since you got to open up your business. And I mean, that area is just beautiful. I mean, the houses that are on the giant exposed cliffs, natural rock and just waterfalls and rivers and back bays. I mean, Maine truly, truly is the definition of natural beauty. And it's really cool to fish within the style that you're talking about because i'm sure a lot of listeners have fished for like bonefish or permit or they fished in the the tropics and it's like a cold water version of the tropics and also to fish for a fish in a uh that's operating in a way you know striped bass can be caught on clams on the bottom off a bucket you know off a fishing pier right they're they are truly every man's fish so to see them get up in literally eight inches of water and pushing around it'd be super spooky and to to listen and try to gauge where you should land a, a small ass fly and put it in a way that doesn't scare them and convince them to eat. It's really cool to see stripers operating in that way and gives you a, a, a really uh, a 
an important appreciation for how dynamic the species is because it can be caught on a giant jig in 40 feet of water. It can be caught on bait on the bottom. It can be caught on a 14-inch dock topwater ripping across the surface. And it also can be fed a small-ass little baitfish shrimp fly in a foot of water. And I think that's what makes stripers so special, so compelling, and, and definitely had to give a little plug for that area because, I mean, at nothing else, if you're going to go a place and get skunked, that's a pretty damn good place to get skunked with how beautiful it is. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's captivating. And, you know, I, that's one of the cool things I've always found really cool about guiding is I, I feel like no matter where you are, who you are, you know, your day to day, you lose appreciation for your surroundings day to day just because it's your routine, you know. But taking people out who have, never been to Maine or never been on the coast of Maine, but have lived there and, you know, and just watching their, their facial expressions and their amazement and awe, you know, um, it's just so cool to, to be that person to show them that. And um, yeah, so super diverse fishery uh, and, you know, the pressure is pretty low. There's, several other guides in the in the bay where i i fish um doing similar type that that have been doing it much longer than i have um but by and all the by and large the the pressure is very low in comparison to uh anywhere south of us in my opinion from what i've seen probably partially related to your taking the most difficult approach to interacting with this species of fish possible right if i moved there and i just wanted to fish in the weekends on my own i'm probably not going to get a polling skiff and try to get up super technical in a way where i have a 45 minute window if that where a tide is optimally you know uh, perfect depth for them to slide in and out and trying to learn the behavior on each fly you know, some people geek out on that, and that's probably the couple boats that you see out there. And then some guys have made their business out there, and that's the other couple boats you see. But for a lot of people, I mean, the shore access and there's some really cool shore walk and wade fish fishing opportunities in Maine. And it's probably a little bit more viable just to lean into that or to have a bay boat where you also could, you know, run around and fish them in deeper, deeper water. So, yeah, there's. For anyone who has not fished Maine, this is not even a plug specifically just for Ben, but if you have not fished in Maine, man, you are, you are missing out. It is ironically, I think it's probably the least talked about dynamic and incredible fishing state on the East coast. I think there's a pretty good argument for how underappreciated Maine is and how much angling opportunity it has. It's a little hidden gem, which I'm okay with. Yeah, you can blame me after this. There'll be mass tourism and all the fisheries will be blown out, and they'll be blaming this one-hour podcast for ruining all the Maine's fishing. But let's let's actually use this as an opportunity to transition over to talking about the dynamic fishing opportunities in Maine. I think the last time I saw you was at the All Species event hosted by Oxbow, and Tim and the Oxbow team hold a really cool event. Anyone that listened to the year-end recap, we talked about it a little bit, but and you correct me if I'm wrong, because you participated with a friend. You were actually on the team. I was up there just supporting and showing love and talking with people a little bit about ASGA and, and our role in the tournament. But it's a tournament yeah. where you essentially have a card with all of the native and, I guess, 
you know, non-native species of Maine and your ability to catch as many of them on fly as you can in like a, what, a 36 hour window? Yes. Yep. Um, it's, it's a pretty cool tournament, uh, and <laughs> extremely hard. Um, my team, we, we, I thought we were going to get it last year, but we took second for the third year in a row. Um, Remind me who won? So it was Joe. Um, yeah, that's right. Joe, Joe, yep. Joe and my, my good buddy, Alex. Um, and I mean, hats off to them. They managed to get one species that we did not. I think they got a, I think they got a sea run brown and we didn't. Oh, and a mackerel. We, last year, we, the year before we got it, the year we didn't. Um, that's one of the fun parts, right? To, to get perspective is it's not all like glamorous species. It's also like a lot of little species that you probably like run the boat over and you never acknowledge. It's like, Oh yeah. So perch and one, well, you, you can rattle them off off the top of your head, but yeah, I mean, you, you met up with me and John in your neck of the woods, your old stomping grounds. And we were trying to get, you know, pike and, um, pickerel and, you know, um, someone, white did someone perch. Set it up to the border and get the first muskie ever recorded. In they did. Year, right. So that's, yep. and it is. And then last year to a tournament, because one of the issues with tournaments, right. Is like putting a undue massive amount of pressure on a fishery in one day. So it is cool how it spreads everyone out and everyone's doing different things. And it's definitely the most diluted fishing pressure model for a tournament. Yeah, and last year there was someone who got shark on on fly, um, <clears throat> but it it's it's a nice break for me, you know, considering I'm on the water every day guiding to take two days off to fish with a buddy and focus on, you know, trash fish, you know, fish that you you never intentionally target from you know, all the sunfish species to, you know, bass to, um, yeah. When's the last time you've hooked a six inch white perch in a boat and your buddy goes, nice. Yes. Good job, Ben. Yeah. Normally you get heckled for that, right? Oh, exactly. I, I mean, you're spending hours like stressed out cause you can't catch, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the, what's the name of it? The, you know, like some sort of there, right? Isn't there like days yeah. creek chubs and stuff? Yeah, it's 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 a pretty cool tournament, and you know, it's Tim Adams, a good good buddy of mine, who who started and kind of hosts it with Oxbow Brewing. Yeah. Um, has just been great. You know, he he helped out with the initial striper tournament that we used to do, um, and this is kind of taken taken the spot which i think is a lot better than than the previous um just because it does spread it out it also opens a lot of awareness to the fishery that we have you know it's so diverse from being able to fish for all the trout species in the you know um western mountains and then you have the saltwater and everything in between and you know, it's, so it's an awesome opportunity to take a couple of days and you know try to get a little competitive, and always great prizes and all for a good cause. This year went to ASGA, 
Um, uh, you know, great prize is an understatement. I said that on one of the other podcasts, but it seriously looked like he had like five people rob a Cabela's. Like, I mean, they had like yeah. thing under the sun. Like, they'd be like, hey, congrats. You got your first little brook trout on fly. It was 16 inches. You win two Yetis, two rods, two reels, a roof rag. It was like, you know, an 18 year old kid walking out of there. Like, their net <laughs> worth went up like 50 grand from, from that. <laughs> Big shout out to all the sponsors who support Tim and uh, a big shout out to Tim. Tim's got a great heart and he's always trying to do things the right way. Be super inclusive uh, for all different people who have different goals and also support conservation. Uh, Really cool dude. I'm not even a big beer drinker. My girlfriend works for one of the more popular breweries down here. I'm not a huge beer drinker. I like hard stuff, but I'll tell you what, if you like beer, Tim brews a good one and uh, you know, stop by the next time you're in Maine or if you ever see it somewhere and you can pick it up, show a little love to Tim for all he's doing for the the community. And also I, I texted him to see if I could get maybe a little insight or a little preview and when the date is, they have not said it yet. Um, but it, it was in September, correct? September of last year. So um, yep. keep an eye out for that. And if you guys can, you know, some people think, travel around and fish different tournaments. That's a cool one to keep on your calendar and challenge yourself. I have a feeling it might be a little later than this past year. Okay. Just a little potential inside knowledge. Insider. Um, okay, we might have to bleep that out. No, that yeah, sounds, but, sounds cool. Everyone, uh, everyone, big shout out to Oxbow, everyone involved up there. That was a lot of fun. And I was glad I got to. I'll tell you what, participating in a tournament, stressful being present for a tournament and getting to watch and just enjoy the vibes significantly less stressful experience. I felt I was on the moon. I just got to sit in the boat with you guys, hang out for a tiny bit at one point yeah. and, and then enjoy all the fi- vibes and talk to people at the after party. That's the way to do a tournament. No stress. Yeah. I, and it's such a great way to raise awareness for conservation, you know, um, you know, being solely focused on stripers um, and being my livelihood, um, you know, it's great to see everybody in the fishing community up here really on board. And, you know, even from managers and, you know, from Commissioner Kelleher down, really leading the charge in most cases for the conservation-minded decisions. You know, it may not win out at ASMFC, um, but it it is to see, it is neat to see how Maine has been so impactful. You know, kind of leading the charge for the conservation of stripers. One hundred percent. It was also really cool. Uh, you had mentioned the last time we saw each other at the tournament, but we actually saw each other down in DC. Um, oh yeah. You're right, because life's and, a giant blur now, so I have no clue where I am on any given day. It's one giant slur. Yeah. Omnia. Yeah, 100% correct. <laughs> yep. Um, and that was that was really cool, getting to go down to D.C. Um, it was, you know, first time for me, something I never really imagined myself ever doing, um, you know, representing ASGA and, you know, being able to talk to all of the main state representatives um and kind of shed some light on on the situation was just extremely eye-opening and and powerful to be able to you know represent and kind of take it a step up from speaking at the asmfc meetings or the hearings you know all all extremely valuable but um that was it makes it feel real 
when you're in person, you know, yeah. it really does make it feel real because some, I do think one of the bigger challenges with, we always talk about Tony and I like advocacy fatigue, right. And like asking, Hey Ben, like do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And obviously knowing that you're going to try to do as many things as you can, but like, you can't always, you know, scream wolf. It's, it's hard. It takes a lot of time and a lot of commitment to participate in this stuff. So when you have someone hop on and they talk for a minute and they hear, thank you, Ben. All right, next up we have Cody. And then you just kind of move on. It's like, was, was I really hurt? Did what I say really matter? And it does make it, I will say all of those comments very much do matter, but it makes it feel that much more real or impactful or tangible when you're in person, especially when you're in our literally our nation's capital. That was a really, really cool experience and makes you feel makes you feel both small when you walk around and see the grand scale of everything going on in the country and, and what you care about is just one thing and other people are justifiably there about their thing that they really care about. But it does make it feel both really small in the scheme of the country, but also feel really big. Like, man, somehow I, I used to just love tying flies at a desk or fishing off the beach or, you know, just standing in the water with a spin rod or floating on a pontoon boat and, now I'm speaking to our nation's leaders about how our fish should be managed. It's, it's really crazy. It's a, it's a overwhelming. I feel like it sometimes. Yeah. And, and, you know, encouraging at the same point, you know, I was just blown away by the main offices, how receptive they were and, you know, kind of shocked that there, there were people in, in the rec sector, um, there period but also you know wanting to speak up and have a voice uh for all of the fisheries you know and and yeah very cool i i hope to be able to do that again uh with everybody but um you know everybody's voice does matter and it it does get tiring you know you're constantly crying wolf and you don't want to turn people off to that but you know this is it is our little sliver of, of our lives, right? What's important to us, what we make a living doing and, you know, having everybody's support, you know, whether it's submit a comment or say a comment is so valuable, you know, even if the end result for a given decision doesn't go our way, you know, there is, there, it, it does impact it long-term, you know? So I thank everybody who did speak up during this last round and, and uh, hopefully I can continue learning and kind of improving my skills to help out in any way I can. Yeah. Well, we're all, we're always learning and always improving. And I'm really, again, I have that same approach when it comes to this aspect, this of my life, which is like really great for, for all the mentors who have been involved with the shitstorm process for a very long time and offer different perspectives and different insights and try to take a little bit from everyone and find what I believe while also building on that base knowledge that you need to, to really find some conviction in what you believe. And so uh, it is really good to have, have those people around. And I guess maybe we're, we're coming up on an hour and a half and it seems like we're going to have, we're definitely going to have to do a second episode. That's about like this <laughs> battling vices and rodeos and horses and all the other crazy non-fishing shit that's gone into making Ben who he is today. But uh, we'll keep this one related to, you know, entrepreneurialism and, and chasing what you love and business and starting guiding and 
you know, one thing that I'll end with, I think could be an important message and takeaway, but I was talking with someone about something very unrelated to this, but within the realm of fisheries last night and always struggle with those, you know, those same convictions of, or, or finding confidence for those convictions and making sure that I understand everything as best as I can when I'm involved. But in reality, we're all learning every single day. And the one thing that I'm trying to remind myself is it's okay to care. Like it's really okay to care about something without being an expert on it. It's really okay to care about something that other people don't care about. And it's really okay to care about something through a lens that other people don't see, you know, that resource or their lives. They don't look through that lens. They look through a different lens. And if you can find a way to compartmentalize people's approaches and perspectives and their backgrounds and how they were raised and where they're from and how they look at things, you know, and recognize that differences in opinions are that push pull that kind of lead us towards hopefully uh, a little bit more uh, unified progress. But that being said, it's just okay to care and you don't have to be the brightest mind in the room to contribute and to also acknowledge that why you contribute. And so really cool to see so many different people, like you said, that were there in DC when we were there from very different backgrounds, from very different fisheries who, who operate. I mean, I was in a little group in some meetings with a gentleman who runs a boat that's 90 something feet and a vast majority of those fish, you know, their fishermen want to put something in the cooler. I, I keep some fish. I have one cooler on my boat and I say me plus three is the limit. If you call with four, I'd prefer that we find a second boat, right? So very different lifestyles, grew up in very different parts of the country, approach our fisheries in very different ways, business model, totally different. But we aligned on the same goal, which is we just want the best for the fishery. We want the best for the resource and to ensure that the next generation has an opportunity to care the same way we do. So that'll be my parting message for everyone that made it an hour and 27 minutes and 22 seconds into this damn thing. Um, It's okay to care. I hope a lot of people listening, anyone that made it this far probably does care too. And that's why they're connected with ASGA. But let's put a plug in part one, Ben. I really appreciate you talking through all this. Where can people find you on Instagram and on their website so they can learn more and maybe fish with you this year? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. And as far as finding me, you can find me at benwallyfishing.com or benwallyfishing on Instagram. Um, That's W-H-L-L-E-Y because I've heard Whaley, Wally, Wooly. Welly and everywhere in between. So B E N W H A L L E Y. F I S H I N G dot com. If they can't figure that one out at that point, they're lost. <laughs> you, you don't need the people that can't spell fishing do not need to be in your life. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Thanks cool, for the dude. opportunity. Yeah, man. I'm looking forward to. Uh, picking your brain more on some flies, hopefully getting you down fishing here one day soon. And uh, yeah, man, I appreciate it. It's been really cool to watch our paths kind of cross and grow. I think we met maybe, what was that? Seven years ago where I was, I was still in college and you were still working that bullshit corporate job, that bullshit corporate Mm -hmm. job failed in on. So cool to continue to grow and learn and listen with you along the way. So 
Appreciate everyone that listened this far. Anyone that listened this far and is hoping that we're going to do a giveaway on this one, we are not because we're running out of stuff. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we'll do one on on a future one here. Keep listening through and, and finding fun little things for our you know committed listeners along the way. But we're done. Get back to the vice. I got to go pick up a trolling motor from the shop. I appreciate you, dude. Like, likewise, man. Take care. Good luck on the water.